Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, our guest is Eddie Ring, CEO of New Standard Equities, a leading investor in multifamily properties located primarily in the Western U.S., including Seattle, Northern and Southern California, and San Diego. Eddie founded New Standard Equities, NSE, in 2010, when he decided to establish his own real estate company that would deliver to its residential communities an excellent quality living space with attractive, reasonable amenities at a price they could easily afford. Eddie has over 25 years of real estate and financial consulting experience with 16 dedicated years investing and operating in the multifamily sector. NSC is a longtime sponsor with Alpha Investing. And in this episode, we go in depth into real estate investing with Eddie as a sponsor and really going into what he's seeing today, why he built his company, and what his goals are. We discuss the impact of the pandemic on various commercial real estate markets, where he's finding value in today's market, and the cities he's most excited by even if those are in the higher priced markets of the Western US. And it's really interesting to get his perspective on this, where most people are not feeling so hot about the Western US markets. Eddie shares his personal perspective on wealth and how it informs his business decisions, especially as his firm aims to build and preserve wealth for its investors with each property they invest in. Even though this is a more technical real estate discussion with so much to learn, there is also a ton of wisdom in the way that Eddie and NSE apply core company values to their company's growth and why this matters so much in the way that he does business and why it matters for his investors, his partners, and also very importantly, his tenants. Eddie, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So just for our listeners to to know, Eddie Ring of NSE is one of our earliest sponsors, earliest sponsor partners at Alpha Investing. We've been working with them since around 2015. And you're very active in the Western US in the multifamily space. And this is such a great time to be speaking about investing in real estate, the multifamily market, and we're going to get into a variety of topics. But to start with, I love the story of NSE and where it came from and and what you're really infusing into the work you do. So could you just spend um, a few minutes just telling listeners who you are, what you do and who NSE is? Sure, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. It's, I started this company back in 2010. It was really out of the last great recession, the big financial crisis. And what I saw was happening all around me at my predecessor firm I was working for a larger institutional company, and I saw that, frankly, there was a lot of things going on 
that I, I wouldn't have done. Ethical ethical questions are not something I, I, I want to be a part of. I'll just put it that way. But, you know, what I did was I sat down and I really looked at myself in the mirror and I said, well, who do you want to be? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And it's it's precipitous that we're having a call right now, 10 years hence. But it's it's super interesting to me when I look back and kind of think about the values that I, I have personally and what I wanted to infuse in, in my own company. So I set about the task of actually creating a company uh, based on a set of core values that I truly believed in. And, you know, I even thought about it long and hard. I was going through a lot of, a lot of internal kind of who am I types of questions and literally standing in Hawaii with in the ocean, with the ocean like coming up on my legs, kind of looking out going, well, what do I want to be and, and who am I? And I realized that I want to be the highest, most transparent, most ethical kind of real estate operator out there. That's who I am. And what I, what I really felt strongly, this was right in the thick, if you remember, of the Bernie Madoff scandals and the craziness that was going on way back in 2010. And I really thought that I wanted to have a company that stood for something different. And I even thought of my company name standing there in Hawaii with the water under my feet. And I thought new standard because I wanted to operate at a new standard, a new standard of transparency, a new standard of, of integrity. And I really thought about that a lot and developed the company around that image and that, and that idea. And today, what I have is I have a company that's you know, roughly 2,000 units, 65 employees or so. And we really have formed our entire organization around these four core values that I truly believe in. And that's that we perform. So we keep our promises. We operate with integrity and excellence at every level. We collaborate. Teamwork is vital to our business and how I think of things. Uh, we're creative. We're actually known for thinking out of the box. We look at the assets from a from all kinds of different perspectives to really make sure we we renovate with a sense of creativity and also financially manage the assets with enough creativity to not just throw money at things to hope they go away, but literally come up with more creative solutions than just the easy way out. And the last core value that is, is that we care. And uh, that care and concern is what drives us. And for, fortunately, we've had these, these core values pre-pandemic because that we care value really did come in handy. We put together care packages for our, our employees and sent masks early on and hand sanitizers and reached out to our residents and we've, we've done enormous amount of work on the on that resident experience in fact over the last couple of years i think it was about a year and a half ago or so i wanted to try to figure out how to how to really capture our entire vibe and those core you know four core values and we came up with a mission and a vision i, I guess i could say the the text of the mission and the vision and it's very simple, and I can explain it a little bit, but you'll see how it all kind of wraps into what I was just saying. Our mission is that we deliver outstanding returns to our investors by providing the ideal living experience for our residents. doesn't mean the best living experience. It's just the ideal one, given where they are and what their ability to pay is. And our vision is actually we attempt and we try, but we want to match 
every single dollar our residents spend on rent with what they truly value and appreciate. So the closer I can match their rental dollar with a service or an amenity that they'll pay for, the higher our investor returns will be. And we came up with about a year and a half ago, uh, maybe almost two years ago now, a kind of cute little branding mechanism that we call Just Right Living. And uh, if you go on our website, you can kind of see a little video and it's all over our site level websites. It's all about branding that resident experience as just right, i.e. it's just right for them. You and I, maybe not so much. You know, I wouldn't want to live in some of my buildings, but you know what? At the price point, it's fantastic for our resident profile. So we, we really like that. We like that, that branding and that imagery. And it also works for investors. They, they understand typically that we're not over-improving and we're not under-improving. You know, if we can see a, you know, a creative component to, to their investor dollars, well, that's going to that's gonna, you know, come out in the IRR at the end of the day or the cash-on-cash cash return at the end of the day, depending on what we're talking about. So I'm very, very moved and excited that I've taken this concept that was really born out of my four values that I cherish or four of my own personal values and in kind of you know, created a company that's imbibed with those values and enveloped a, a branding mechanism around that. And you know, today, our, our employees are thrilled. We've reduced our turnover to, uh, to very, very minimal comparatively to the marketplace. That's also accretive to IRRs, if you look at site-level turnover. We've, we've developed a best-in-class team. I've brought in folks from over the last eight years, 10 years or so. I've brought in a chief operating officer that used to be with Carmel Partners and Riverstone Residential and Graystar. My chief financial officer came over from Kennedy Wilson with me, who I had worked with previously for 15 years. My chief investment officer is my latest uh, C-suite hire from about a little bit more than a year ago now, Tim Walters, who Tim has been, uh, used to run Avalon Bay on the West Coast. So all of all acquisitions and dispositions under Avalon happened under Tim rather for Avalon. So I have this really solid best in class C-suite of folks and we're really pumped and excited about what we see in the future here on the West Coast. Long-winded, but that's the story. <laughs> no, it's never it's never long-winded. We always like to give our guests like an opportunity to say everything that needs to be said and then we like we dig in and there's actually a few things that that you said that I think are really valuable to extrapolate a little bit for our listeners and one of them relates to what you said about basically like your resident management. And, you know, through the, the, pan, the pandemic and, and even before the pandemic, but especially, you know, uh, like the portfolio has done like relatively well, like even our investments with you have done relatively well. And I tell people when I do investor calls, it's a function of who our sponsors are and how well they take care of people. Because in a way, some people think that rent isn't ob- obligatory and they might not have it to pay. But if you're a good person to them they're more likely to pay. And so what you said validated that for me. Absolutely. The second that this thing happened, call it, you know, or maybe it was the second week in March when we started started looking at the news and saying, hang on a second, we got an issue. We stopped all renovation activity. 
So we were in the throes of everything we do here. I think you know is some kind of value add. So we're running the assets at 91, 92% because we've got things in renovation and others are coming out and they're on the market. We're trying to get the highest rent dollar, the highest rent we can for those units. And so we were you know, generally in that 91-ish percent category. Well, we saw the news and we kind of said, hang on, we have to react. And we immediately stopped all renovation activity. We shifted from a get the highest price we can to fill the box as fast as we can. And so we took the portfolio from 91 all the way up to, I want to say at one point during the, during the thick of the, of the lockdowns, we were up at 98% physically occupied. There was no units available. And we did that purposefully because I figured, well, if we can fill the boxes up as close to 100 as possible, anything that, we, that wouldn't come out in terms of COVID-related deferments would bring us back down into that 91, 92 kind of economic collections sort of range. And I was right because ultimately today, I think we're about 92-ish percent. I've got about 8% COVID deferrals. And so our distributions really haven't been affected. You know, they come from higher occupancy rather than higher rents for those particular units that were remaining. But by and large, we haven't really, if you look at our in-place rents, we haven't really had to drop rents that significantly. We've been able to really kind of maintain our positions with this extra occupancy that we've been striving for. So we've been super successful at that. We also, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we reached out to one of our our bad debt um, collection agencies and struck a deal with them to help us track COVID deferments. So we actually made a programmatic kind of thing with our residents to say to them, hey, if you'd like to get on a payment plan, no problem. We're more than happy to have you on a payment plan. You don't have to pay, you know, your rent, obviously, per the entire, you know, governmental restrictions or, or, or relaxations of rent collections, et cetera. But we would like you to be on this payment plan. So we wanted to sort of make it a kind of an obligation that they understood that they had still. It wasn't just a free ride because we're now able to give them notices and give them updates on what their account looks like and their balances and all that. Now the question will be with, I don't know, I think corporately or I think portfolio wide, I think we're up to around $3 million owed or something like that. It's a lot of money. But I think I have a strategy for all of that, and that's I'm going to most likely forgive a month or let's call it three weeks for every six weeks that somebody pays current. So as people, as we come out of this thing, I'm not interested in just evicting everybody. Because if we just evicted everybody, we're going to end up specialing the rent and having to lower rent and fight against ourselves and all our neighbors and whatnot. Instead, I want to work with the people that we have call the uncollectible money or the non-collected money or the uncollected money on not collectible and write off little pieces of it as I'm collecting more and more. So hopefully I translate the exact same resident profile as they get work and they go back to work, et cetera, and we don't wind up actually losing anything. That's kind of my insight for how I'm going to handle the thing. But it all comes out from trying to actually put ourselves in our resident's shoes and really understand what they're going through. And we did it with a lot of compassion and a lot of concern and in multi-languages as well. So we were really trying hard. We really made a concerted effort to get out in front of this thing 
with our residents and really just do our do our darndest to to kind of lead with compassion and yet still collect the rent. I mean, it's really important, you know. So yeah, that's that's something that is great to hear because it illustrates a point that I think is particularly important and one that whenever we chat with new investors, we really try to get across, which is you know, the caliber of the sponsor is at the very top of our deal evaluation hierarchy. You can look at the underwriting, you can stress test every assumption, you can look at all the third party market reports, but at some point during the life of a project, something is going to happen, probably not as extreme as COVID, but something's going to happen where the sponsor is going to need to use their expertise to figure out how to be flexible and you know, kind of get out of this situation. And so it's great to hear you know, kind of how forward thinking you've been, you know, with respect to, to COVID and these properties. And then the question I would have is, you know, on a going forward basis, what are you expecting to see? How are you planning now that, you know, we're at this point in the health crisis? What do things look like going forward for, for NSE properties? So what I think, you know, I think about this, of course, I think of nothing else. That's kind of a problem too, by the way. But I think my, uh, you know, I think our company is poised for, for, you know, great things in the next year to year and a half. I really, I honestly think that we're going to be on the front end of a lot of opportunities because, you know, we've had, we've had, I've not furloughed anybody. I've not laid anybody off. I've kept the machinery going. We haven't done a deal in a year, but we've gotten really good at operating and we've refined our tools and we've automated things and we've done all kinds of really super interesting things on the, in the back office in terms of how we've kind of improved ourselves. And we really are poised for tremendous growth, which is where we think we're going to see opportunities. I actually think we're going to see opportunities in slightly newer product. I think there's going to be a, a chance to get into some stuff that may have a little bit you know, less deep value add and a little more core plus kind of opportunities. I, I see that there's a lack of buyers and kind of uh, that product that's 2010 and, and newer. So it's an interesting, you know, we might be able to find our way into a little sweet spot of some, some really interesting communities. We're seeing cap rates obviously very, very low. So we're cognizant of what that means to our, to our investor yields. And we want to make sure that we're still offering something for, for everybody's uh, you know, investor dollar. That's really super important. Yields in general will probably be a little lower, but I'd rather the yields be lower because we're buying higher and better product than the yields are lower because other people are paying more for the same older vintage stuff that's got tons, tons of extra risk. So I'm always, we're always looking at the cap rate and really trying to understand where, what's driving the cap rate and where that risk is and, and we want to make sure that we can mitigate that risk with capital or we don't want to take the risk. So it's kind of one of those ever ever lit guides that we have to always just kind of pay attention to. But in terms of opportunities, we're excited about Denver. We think that there's some really incredible opportunities out there. We're, we're still bullish on greater Seattle, not CBD proper unless I can get some really awesome discounts for being right in the middle of downtown. But uh, the suburban markets in Seattle are still great. 
the Northern Cal markets, they've been hit almost, I think they've been hit the hardest out of our entire portfolio. And again, I think it's because of messaging at the, at the local level, but nevertheless, we still see a lot of opportunity there if we can find the product. And of course, Southern Cal, there's always interesting things that pop up. It's just very, very competitive right now. So we have to always find our niche. We had one deal that I thought would have been an amazing project that literally got, we, we, it slipped through our fingers for no, no real reason other than there was some quid pro quo happening between the broker and the, and the winning buyer. And I just don't participate in that kind of stuff. So right. that's life. Right. You know, it's interesting. You said so many, so many things, so many of these like nuances that you know so well that maybe an investor doesn't really understand as you're starting with this, this aspect of like the competitive nature of the market. And there's things Mm -hmm. that happen. Like, like you said, you thought you had a deal and then it slips out of your fingers, but then was it last year or two years ago where you came to us and because we've done so many deals with you, you had something that needed to close. I want to say it was like a three week close and it, like something really fast that you, you know, the, the first buyer fell out and then they came to you. And so, you know, can you talk just a little bit from the, like on the ground perspective of doing what you do, you you know, like the life of acquisitions, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So we look at almost everything we possibly can. Tim runs our acquisitions group. We have, we have a VP of acquisitions and oops, are you still there? Okay, sorry, yeah, just no for a second there. We have a VP of acquisitions and we have an analyst. And with those three and myself, because I'm still intimately involved with the sourcing, we will un- really turn over every rock. Everything that is in our markets, which is, by the way, everything that we can get to a plane, train, or automobile within three hours. So from our corporate office or now we have two corporate offices, one down in, in Irvine and one, one here in Los Angeles. But literally everything is within three hours. So at any given moment, if I needed to hop on a plane at Burbank Airport, I could be at one of our assets in, in Seattle. It's just not that tough. Or hop on a train or a car or whatever it is that we have to do. I'd like to be within that three-hour kind of time frame. And we are looking at literally everything. So if it we had an asset that we were chasing really hard down in Vista, Vista, California, which is a kind of a North San Diego submarket. And that asset was, it hadn't been touched, incredible story, hadn't been touched in 50, 60 years, really, in terms of any value-add improvements. It was run by a family. The kids didn't want it. The parents died. The kids didn't want it anymore. They wanted to sell it. Incredible. The story was amazing. The on-paper story. Everything we look for, except for every single investor in greater San Diego liked that story too. And so we spent a long time trying to make those numbers work and look at it and understand. And as an operator, we understand how difficult it is to run some of these things. And that thing was going to, I think it ultimately traded at a 3.8 cap rate going in. And we looked at it and we, our numbers stopped at around four and a quarter or something like that. We couldn't, we just couldn't, the numbers didn't work. And we looked at ourselves and we looked at our, our investor base and we looked at what the, what 
this other groups were buying this thing for. And we just we didn't agree with their assessment at all. No matter how awesome that story sounded, we literally looked down our port, our pipeline list and we we're like, well, I don't get it. If we can buy a four and a quarter cap for 30 years newer product in Northern Cal, where there's tech workers down in Vista, it's, it's a much more working class demographic. So all of a sudden we were like, well, wait a minute, why would we pay for a, a three eight cap for the lower end demographic when we can buy a four and a quarter cap and actually have a demographic that will be willing to pay a higher rent down the road. Or similarly, out in Denver, there's a project right now that we're, we're looking at. It's like a four, three, four, four cap. It's built in 2004. Really, really beautiful asset, great product. We don't necessarily have to do that much to it, but our investors will get paid for what they're buying, as opposed to buy something, say, in Vista at a 3.8 cap, a bunch of deferred maintenance and a bunch of, you know, basically things that you, you have to do that won't accrete to higher rent. Our investors may like the story going in better, but it's not going to give them, it's not going to yield them more money. And that's really important. I look at that kind of stuff and we really dissect it. Yeah, it sounds like it. And what you're saying is you're looking at risk-adjusted returns. Yes, and that, I mean, you said it a few times in different ways, but you just outlined exactly what a risk-adjusted return is and what you just said about the story is important, but so are the facts and the numbers. Everybody loves, loves a good story, but we also like to make. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I actually laugh sometimes because I call myself, I mean, yeah, I'm in real estate. Woo, it's crazy, right? But I am actually a very risk-averse person. <laughs> I don't like taking risk. That's why I do multifamily. That's why I'm in the value-add space. That's why I only I hug these West Coast markets. I don't really like taking risk. I like taking risk where I know I'm taking less risk than I'm getting that I'm you know able to achieve in in, in premium and yield. That I like because I like a good deal. But I don't like risk. So if I could figure out a way to buy and get a higher than normal risk adjusted return, that's gold for me. I feel great because I feel like, wow, I just bought something that I didn't, I'm not taking that much risk, but whoa, look at these returns I'm able to deliver. Love that. All day long, I will do that kind of a deal. But the, the times where I'm forced to take risk that I'm not loving, I really want to, I, I steer away. And that includes environmental risk, that includes operational type risks it includes everything. I just don't want to take that risk. If I'm not getting paid for it, forget it. If we are getting paid for it, okay, maybe it's all right. That that takes, you know, that's why we have an investment committee, for instance. I have you know, five people that are weighing in on the thing before we'll pull the trigger. And of course, you guys have your own committee and whatnot. But internally for us, it doesn't even get to you unless it's past our our, our committee. Let me ask you what might be an obvious question. You know, what compels a group to buy that San Diego property at a, a 3.8 cap rate? Is it, you know, 1031 capital, farm capital, just different return profile? Like, how does a group actually get comfortable or are they just someone who's making a mistake? You know, it's a great question. I don't 100% know which, who bought that thing. But I have a feeling I do know, I, I know at least one group that was really pursuing it hard. It's a long-term family office who 
operates a bunch of assets in the area. And they look at things on a 10-year-plus kind of you know time horizon that they know that over time, that 3.8 cap will turn into a 4.7 cap or a 5 cap or whatever, and that will ultimately lead to decent cash flow. Maybe it's year five. But they're not looking to buy, renovate, sell like we all are. We're trying to generate five-year kind of returns in that you know, call it mid, you know, whatever, I don't know, low to mid-team kind of, you know, level returns to investors. And, you know, other folks are running around with their own private money and, you know, it's better to get something for than nothing. I, I was in a, a lunch a couple of weeks ago where a, a gentleman was talking about uh, the same kind of dynamic, but even more egregious, something like a two and a quarter, two and a half cap or something that the group was purchasing. And he asked them, how could you possibly get used to a, a two and a half cap? That doesn't make any sense. And the guy said, listen, our money is coming from Germany. And Germany has negative interest rates right now. So actually, two and a half cap, that's incredible. That's positive by 250 basis points. From their perspective, that made a whole lot of sense. So Daniel, you know, your, your point is right on. It, where their capital comes from is a huge component of it. What the investors or that ultimate buyer's sort of end game is, is a huge component of it. But if it's folks that have funds the way you know our access to funds are with the similar kind of yields that our investors expect, we're not going to do that two and a half cap kind of deal because you know we'd rather we can unlike Germany we at least for now we can keep the money in the market here or keep it in our you know, in our cash accounts, because we feel better rather than getting a two and a half percent yield. We feel better generally looking at it every day and going, oh, I haven't lost any, you know. Yeah. Hearing about a two and a half cap is terrifying, right? Yep. It's a question of where's where's the market going? And, and it'd actually be something that I think would be really helpful for our listeners to hear just from you. You know, we've been in this period of, you know, pretty much across the board cap rate compression for a very long time. Where did where does it end? You know, where did where do the trends start to reverse? What has to happen in order for that to occur? Or is there just so much dry powder, so much interest in real estate that you know cap rates are going to continue to compress for the foreseeable future? I think my and this is just me forecasting, so it's worth you know it's not it's worth toilet paper. But the you know from my viewpoint, there is a lot of capital out there chasing real estate, and that's driving prices down, and the primary thing that that is bolstering everybody's investment um, ideas is low interest rate environment. I mean, we're borrowing at two, two and a quarter, two, 2.3%, I think, interest only on some of our deals. It's just crazy. It's literally crazy. But that is what's driving cap rates so low. Now, I don't think that's going to stay this way forever, but I don't think that interest rates are going to be rising anytime soon because of where we are in the economic sort of, you know, cycle. I think we're in a recession. We're in a, a period of, of unemployment that's going to stick around for at least through, uh, through the time we can get this, you know, vaccine out to the people. I'm thinking at least the next nine to 18 months, we're going to be in a lower interest rate environment. Maybe that interest rate environment extends itself 24 to 36 months. And again, then it'll start creeping up again, maybe. Ultimately, it has to, I think, has to adjust because we've got 
trillions of dollars out there in stimulus. So this is a lot of free money out there that I don't see how doesn't ultimately cause some inflation. Now, don't forget, inflation is not a terrible thing. Inflation, part of, you know, rent is part of inflation. So if there's inflation, rent is going up, which is great. So hopefully inflation happens, rent continues to appreciate, and then cap rates sort of maybe decompress and will offset that decompression with higher rents. That's the big hope. I kind of don't see how it could happen otherwise, although I'm not an economist and there are probably people out there that can you know, throw some good facts and figures my way and I'd be, I'd be silenced. But I, I actually feel pretty good about where I think it's all heading. That's, to be clear, several more years, you know, call it 18 to 36 months of low interest rates and maybe some real, some real rent growth in the coming, you know, 18 to 36 month period as well. So bodes well for us. Yeah. And do you see that in, you know, cause you're, you're operating in Western, you know, the Western U S where, especially on the coasts where um, we're looking more at capital appreciation and you were doing more of the, of the value add, you know, can you talk a little bit about why you continue to like these markets that some might say, hey, the price is topped out? And, you know, why are you, why do you still like these like higher priced markets, so to speak? Great question. Number one, the first, first and foremost, the market decisions that we make are knowledge, our own knowledge. So I never want to put an investor dollar at risk for my own ignorance. So if I'm, if I'm buying in California, well, I happen to know California really well. Denver, we've got Tim Walters who bought 2,500 units or so for Avalon Bay in Denver. So we are really well uh, versed in each of the markets that we pursue. And we also look at the jobs in the markets and where we are unemployment-wise, where we are COVID-wise, all of that goes into our market selection. And so it just so happens that those markets that we know and we like are kind of lower cap rate markets. But again, I'd rather buy all day long. I'd rather buy a three nine cap in you know Anaheim, right outside Disneyland. Even though there's all these unemployed Disney workers, that's not going to last. But I'd rather buy that at a three nine than say somewhere in I don't know, pick a pick a town, Duluth, you know, or. Uh, I don't even, I don't, wouldn't even, Knoxville, Tennessee, I don't know. Maybe that's a great market, who knows. But I'd rather buy something in a market that I know at a cap rate that feels right than to go out on a limb, say that I got a nine cap somewhere and I'm all excited and realize that I'm going to lose my principal at the end of the day, right. even though it's a great looking cap rate. So I don't take that kind of risk. Yeah, just a follow-up question. I, I wonder because, you know, I think everybody uh, is, is cognizant of how much rent's dropped in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And what do you, and this is like a, a crystal ball kind of a question, but I'm really curious of what you think about the San Francisco market. Are you seeing properties come on the market? When do you expect those properties potentially to come on the market and the opportunity there? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's fascinating. San, San Francisco literally is 30 to maybe even 40% off now from where it was. It's a lot. Rent has plummeted. The city of San Francisco is a ghost town, except for, you know, homeless people and people who don't want to leave vis-a-vis their families, I guess. But for the most part, the millennial renter 
that flooded that market for you know for the last three or four years and drove rents up alongside the tech companies who were paying you know out outside salaries for those folks who wanted to live in San Francisco. Well, they've all left. So that's that's unfortunately what's gone on there. If we could buy in San Francisco right now on a cap rate that includes the depressed rents all day long, <laughs> I would buy that all day. I don't know that those projects are going to come to market. Actually, there was one particular deal I was looking at off market. Out of, in my own head, I thought it would be amazing. So wrote an offer and tried to get it, you know, peel it out from the institutional owner that owns it. And they're like, no, we're not selling now. We're going to sell it. And if we ever sell it, it'll be after we've stabilized and gotten that cap rate back up. So it's not really going to be a buying opportunity, I don't think. But but maybe. And we, we have our eye on it. And it's possible that, that we might be able to peel something out that's really a discount to, to where it was pre-COVID, which would be very exciting. Right. At the same time, you know, there are other assets that we have and that we look at. We bought, I don't think you guys are part of it. We bought down in Merino Valley a couple of years ago. And Merino Valley was very rough, very almost redlined with most institutional type investors several years ago. And I looked at this thing and I was like, well, wait a minute. I think it's got all the fundamentals that we're looking for. You know, I think we should take a run at it. So we bought this thing. And that's one of those huge surprises in this COVID sort of world where the probably the asset with our lowest demographic in terms of median income and, and uh, willingness to pay has been, it's 227 units and we've been 100% occupied for most of the last time, 99% whatever. And that's an asset where we've been able to raise rents during all through the pandemic. Because there are people who like that price point and Amazon has really come into that Moreno Valley market and filled up the employment gap that used to be there when March Air Force Base went out. I mean, I think it's March. Anyway, when they went out of business or got closed or shuttered or whatever, there was a big gap in employment. And now that's kind of been bridged and it's really, really on fire out there. It's terrific. So, you know, it also, when we select markets, we also understand we have to have an understanding of the market, but we also have to really understand the nuances. You know, it, it took a lot of effort for me to explain to our investors in that particular deal that this is not the Merino Valley from 10 years ago. It's the Merino Valley where Amazon is really the biggest employer and, and the, our residents are out delivering packages and coming back and, you know, paying for a nice building and they like it. And, and our price point started low. I think our cap rate there was like five and three quarter cap or something three years ago, but our price point was low and now it's a little inched up because, well, that's what we do. We inch things up a little and, and we'll enjoy that yield when we go to sell it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's always, um, like you said, there's so many nuances and yeah, every building is its own you know, business plan and its own P&L and, and, and everything. And I actually wanted to see about talking a little bit about, you know, who the tenants are. Like when we talked to our investors, we're saying, you know, we're investing in class B. Can you tell us from your perspective, you know, what somebody would expect when they hear a class B and when they hear like the value add and who these tenants are and just kind of talk about that from, from your perspective. 
Sure, yeah. And that's a, another really great question. Our residents are, and of course it varies uh, depending where we are, but you know, a class, a typical workforce housing class B renter that we that we target are they might be they might be teachers, nurses, they are service personnel, they are kind of uh, entry level management folks, some retail, some you know uh, janitorial but not much. That's a little bit class that's a class below usually. No offense. It's generally not hospitality line workers. You know, it's generally a little bit higher than that demographic. When when you look across our portfolio, and we were really worried about our during COVID with all the unemployment out there and and what was going to happen to our assets, we really didn't get a huge hit at most of our portfolio because mostly we were catering to folks that couldn't quite afford a single family home. But they weren't really in that um, first line of cuts that everybody made. All the bus or you know bus staff and wait staff and hospitality staff that just got shuttered. Really, people were a little bit higher uh, higher end than that. You know, call it you know that thirty to fifty thousand dollar earner, and not the below thirty earner. So along those lines, I want to bring it all the way back to when you said the just right. Mm-hmm. So what is just right for these tenants? So it sort of depends on exactly where we are, but at most of our assets, just right living is clean. It's relatively safe. We can't promise that, but it's relatively safe environment. It's a friendly staff. It's a location that is easily walkable to amenities, restaurants, theaters, Sometimes it has a nice view of the bay. It's a it's a property that feels good. It's got a fitness center, but it doesn't necessarily have the greatest fitness center that anybody's ever seen. But it works. It works to work out in. You know, it works and somebody doesn't have to buy a gym membership. They can hop on the bike. They can hop on the you know on the treadmill or whatever. So it's it's just enough for them, and they feel like they don't have to pay through the nose to get it. And then all of that sort of soft stuff, which is, you know, a friendly hello from the leasing office. It's a friendly reminders. It's a community events. It's, you know, we do everything. We, we have, we're building out a community garden at one of our, one of our sites, you know, it's just going to be fantastic. So it's things like, doesn't, frankly, it doesn't cost a lot of money, but wow, our residents love it. They love having things that they really want. And sometimes we'll do a survey or we'll do an ask or whatever it is, but we've been doing this long enough that we understand what they're looking for. And we really try to cater to to that. And again, it's about class and style. I mean, if we're buying something in the 2010 vintage that we're able to charge, you know, a little higher rent, well, that fitness center is going to be a lot nicer than something that's in the 1985 vintage in a more working class neighborhood. But the 85 Vintage will have a fitness center and the residents there will love it. Right, right. Yeah, it really sounds like you're you're catering to what they need as opposed to, you know, maybe this is, a, I don't know if it's like a, an amateur mistake. I don't know if that's the right word, but like somebody going in and saying, I'm going to buy this building and I'm going to put all this money into it and I'm going to make it fantastic. And, and, and really, they're not going to get the kind of tenants 
that is going to, that are going to justify what That's you right. just spent on the CapEx. That's right. That's right. And then if that happens that you can kiss your uh, returns goodbye. You know, that's really, that's the worst mistake you can make. Over-improve a unit, over-improve an app, you know, it's just terrible. You want to make sure that you're getting a nice return on, on that investor dollars. I think we target somewhere between, we call it nine on the very low end, but it's usually closer to 12 to 18% return on cost for that investor dollar. So in other words, you know, we want to see, call it a 15% return uh, in, in higher rent for that dollar that got spent on your fitness center. If we can't get that, we're not building it. Right. Yeah. And it might not even be what those residents want. And it won't be if that's, if you can't get it, it's not what That's right. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's a demand. Yeah. That's a demand. Okay. Well, we're, we're kind of running up on time. So I wanted to ask you one final question, which we ask all our guests and that's how do you think about building wealth and what does wealth mean to you personally? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think it's funny, you know, I, I've never, I don't really think about it that often. I think of my needs in terms of what I can give and my family and what I can, how I can take care of people. I think first and foremost about the 65 different families that I'm sort of supporting as employees for my company. But, you know, ultimately, you know, you can't take it with you. I know that's like a dumb, you know, kind of stereotype or whatever you want to call it, not stereotype, you know, it's, you can't, I get it. It's an adage. And it's fun to have cash and have wealth and you can kind of not worry so much about things. And, but I think you get more by giving things away. I think you give, you get more by, get more internally by giving. You know, we have a, we have an ESG program now where we're, we're really thinking about that component of what we do as very, very vital. So we're, we're doing things like each of our regions, we're having our sites kind of come together and figure out where, where to donate, you know, locally at the community level, you know, at the, where in the community. And it, the, right now the money just comes from me and, and I'll make the, just, you know, I'll write the checks. It doesn't come from the properties generally, almost ever. But, but I, want, I want that level of engagement where we're giving and that behavior of giving. I think that's when you can actually give, I think that that's wealth. I think that is you are a wealthy person if you are able to give. And I think that's really my definition. And, and it, it's not healthy if you're not able to give and you're not wealthy if you're not giving. You know, so it's sort of one of those things. And then for our investors to create wealth or to build wealth, generally speaking, our investors have done a remarkable job on their own to create their own wealth. And it's our job to assist them in furthering that wealth and maybe containing that wealth or keeping that wealth and not losing it in something willy-nilly like the stock market where nobody has any control anywhere. But at the end of the day, a, an investor wants to sort of build on their wealth. Hopefully, if, it's, if they're like-minded, they're doing it in part, at least, to give back to their own communities and their own families, etc. So I think that the world would be a really awesome place if everybody had that mentality where wealth is about how much we can, we can give. 
I agree. I love that definition. That's that's really great to hear. And that you're doing an ESG. So environment. can we just define it for those who may not know? It's environmental, sustainable, and green? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's environmental, social, and governance. I see. So, okay. yeah. So what we look for, we try to do green and environmentally friendly projects. We try as much as possible where it actually still generates a yield for the investor. That's first and foremost. Uh, but if we can switch out to LED lights or we can switch out yeah. to low flow toilets, sometimes there, there are programs, government programs that pay for it. It's just right. we take the extra step in trying to find those. And then the S is social. It's social um, awareness. It's diversity in our hiring. It's what are we, who are we about and who do we stand for and what groups are out there that need a leg up that we can actually help without hindering. And governance is, you know, how we measure ourselves against all of these other goals and how we measure ourselves against the global community. We actually joined, it's a little bit, I don't know if there's any other sponsors out there like this, but we joined the UN Global Compact last year as a way to stand up with, I don't know, thousands of other organizations all over the world to say, no, we stand up for these kinds of values and diversity and ethics and social responsibility. And we, we really do try to live, live those values. And we are, we're, nobody told us to go do an ESG program, but we just felt that that was part of who we are. And it would be relatively easy for us to do the few things that could actually make a little difference in our communities. It's amazing. Thank you so much um, for sharing all of that and for taking the time to be with us today and have this like really just very educational about real estate from the sponsor's perspective and everything that we've we've talked about. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your partnership and everything that you're doing for us and our investors. Um, Really proud to be partnered with you. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it to both of you guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.